1 Timothy 6, 9 and following says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So that means, then, that you shouldn't want to be rich, right? Or is the meaning of the passage that Paul is giving some pastoral advice in a particular situation where people are being greedy and lusting after riches. Now clearly, if viewed in the light of the totality of Scripture, and especially in view of the Eighth Commandment, Paul does not prohibit the pursuit of riches, and the Word of God as a whole encourages the lawful acquisition of wealth. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the positive applications of the Eighth Commandment, particularly the pursuit of wealth. So stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. We're continuing on in our series on the Ten Commandments. We're going to deal with part two of the Eighth Commandment. We're going to deal with the positive applications as usual. Joining us for the discussion is Reverend Adam Kalushin from Ontario United Reformed Church and Reverend Moses Janbazian from Pasadena URC. And I'm John Sautel, pastor of All Saints Reformed Church. And you may be asking the question, okay, getting to the positive side of the Eighth Commandment, why is it stilted so heavily towards this issue of money and pursuit of wealth and all this? We're just a bunch of greedy people. Well, uh, I stumbled across a phrase in the Westminster Larger Catechism, which really caught my attention, but I think it does point to an application of the Eighth Commandment, which routinely uh, is overlooked. And it says that, One of the duties required in the Eighth Commandment is a provident care and study to get, keep, and use those things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature. In other words, what it's saying is that a true Christian will study to figure out how to make money in order to live. Acquisition of wealth. That's right. Let me give you this beautiful biblical example. The wise woman of Proverbs 31. Listen to what the scripture says about her, this one whose worth is far above rubies. Uh, She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and she buys it and from her profits she plants a vineyard. And it goes on and on. What's very fascinating about this woman is, far from being condemned for the careful care she has in studying her wealth, in uh, investing and in going, advancing in business, acquiring wealth for her family, and also that she can do good with it, far from being condemned for that, she is being She's set out as a beautiful example yeah, for us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's remarkable how many times in Scripture you encounter this theme if you really just kind of search it out. You know, you mentioned the Proverbs. Another one is Proverbs 10.4, which says a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. See, it's commending a behavior which results in riches. 
Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So here you see this idea that wealth in itself is not the bad thing. It is the love of money, this being consumed with money as the only goal that is the sin. And there's a number of passages in the scriptures that strike this balance. Proverbs 37 says, Two things, Lord, I request of you. Do not deprive me of them before I die. First, remove falsehood and lies far from me. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches and feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And what it's saying is we have to keep these ideas in balance. You don't necessarily have a greedy and a sinful heart by the acquisition even of great wealth, nor by being poor do you necessarily uh, have a heart that will be you know, prone to theft. The point is you work for contentedness and you give the character of being hardworking and being thankful for any blessings that the Lord does give you. You move on to the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament value or idea. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, where he is giving the pattern of what a redeemed life looks like says in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, the behavior is, is a commendable behavior because at the end of the day, it enables you to acquire riches so that you in turn will have something to give. If you don't work diligently, you don't pursue wealth, you won't have anything to give people. Yeah, and again, this idea that wealth is wrong, inherently evil, is just not right. It's not biblical. The same passage that uh, John opened with, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, the preacher. He says, listen, you command those who are rich in this present age to not be rich anymore, to give it all. No, he says, listen, don't be haughty. That is, don't be arrogant and don't trust in your uncertain riches, but rather in the living God, who is the one who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. And he based, now notice that. He says, it is not wrong to be rich, to have the money that the Lord has blessed you with, to work hard for that, to acquire wealth. But what should you do with it? Well, you shouldn't be proud and arrogant and boastful. You shouldn't oppress people with it. You shouldn't think that uh, all your security is in that. You should recognize it's from the Lord. And he says, God gives it to us richly so that we may enjoy it and then do good things with it. Now, we're not just saying that we should just become money grubbers and that's all we should have is dollar bills uh, signs in our eyes. But what we want to do is attack this... Uh, anti this this unbiblical anti-materialistic attitude which runs prevalent in evangelicalism today so stay tuned with us on sinners and saints located in the heart of los angeles grace evangelical church is a reformed church committed to the three forms of unity the solas of the reformation the doctrines of grace the preaching of the law and the gospel the weekly administration of the lord's table along with catechism classes for adults and children Give us a call at area code 310-782-7019. 310-782-7019. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if you want to be wise unto salvation and learn to live for God's glory, you need the Word of God. And that's why I'm inviting you to come worship with us at All Saints Reformed Church. Hi, my name is Pastor John Sautel. I'm pastor of All Saints Reformed Church out in Walnut, California. We can't promise you you'll be entertained with high-energy music or thrilling performances or exciting worship or trendy programs, but we will promise you that you'll get the Bible. 
because in our worship, we read the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we preach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. If you want to come to know God through his word and to grow in his grace and knowledge, then we invite you to worship with us at All Saints Reformed Church. For more information, call us at 909-319-3479. That's 909-319-3479. Or check us out on the web at allsaintsreformed.org. Okay, back after the break, and as promised, we're going to deal with the positive applications of the Eighth Commandment, primarily in terms of the acquisition of wealth. I'm going to repeat this phrase from the Catechism again, because I think it is a really nicely put phrase, which we don't think about, and that is the Eighth Commandment requires a provident care and study to get, keep, and use the things which are necessary and convenient to support our nature and our condition. Uh, Basically, it's saying, it's encouraging, it's saying the Eighth Commandment mandates the acquisition of wealth. Why don't we hear more about this? Why isn't there more of an accent on this encouraging Christians to acquire wealth and so that they don't feel guilty about it? Well, part of it is that I guess it's a difficult balance to strike, especially here in the West where we live with such abundance that it almost seems wrong to tell people that they should be actually striving to gain even more. And, you know, throughout historic Christianity, there's always been this desire to renounce wealth, take vows of poverty, and when people do well to actually just be consumed with guilt that they have more and others have less. But this fails to recognize that God in his providence has given us money partly to test us, but also to show us that we can be generous, we can trust in him, and to continue to give to others as we are able for their good. So in other words, you do the work and others get the benefit, which is a very Christ-like attitude to have. Okay, but let me ask this question more pointedly. Why is there an anti-rich attitude at least that's the party line. I'm not saying that there's no wealthy people in our churches today, because certainly there are. But why is it at least uh, when riches come up, it's always sort of cast in a negative light? Like, oh, we feel guilty because us greedy Westerners have uh, higher living standards and more money than the rest of the world. Well, I got a couple of reasons. The first reason I honestly think is legitimate conviction. I mean, it's not like it's completely untrue that we are greedy Westerners. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying the riches that God has given us. In fact, that's how Paul describes riches in that passage we just read a couple minutes ago. But at the same time, I think that American Christians are often convicted of greed and laziness because that's something that they indeed struggle with. So in a strange way, it sort of twists their own thinking about the positive aspect of wealth and acquisition because they're not being consistent in how they would otherwise uh, use it. So that's one reason. Yeah, and then it leads to a false piety of, you know, even though I will keep accumulating the wealth, I will at least act like it's a bad thing, and so I won't really uh, say positive stuff about it. So you wind up almost with this hypocrisy of, I will do the action, but then I will condemn the action in my thoughts or in my overall way of speaking. And so that's not really an acceptable thing to do. We need to really bring them together and do that which God requires in thought and in deed. Yeah, your question is why, where, where does this idea that the acquisition of wealth is evil come from? I think another answer is rarely does a person ever think that they are rich. They always look at the, the level above them, the person who has a nicer car, the person who has a nicer, newer home in a better neighborhood. And they think that those people are rich and they are really envious of the people who are above them, whether or not they are rich and acknowledge it themselves. And so what happens is it's a self-justification. 
riches, acquisition of wealth is evil. But see, they don't ever see really themselves as the ones doing it. <laughs> so they could condemn it, even though all the time they're they're doing it. So, but I mean, it is. It's false piety. It's it's yeah. not true that that's evil. <clears throat> At the end of the day, it's uh, it's a sort of strain of Gnosticism, which says that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. Well, we've answered that question uh, to some measure. Now, I want to I want to turn it in a little bit different direction. If we have agreed that it's a biblical concept that Christians ought to acquire wealth and or at least pursue the acquisition of wealth. I want to ask a question. Should Christians then choose a profession based upon how much money they can make? That should certainly be one of the aspects that you consider because you are given a limited amount of time in this world and the abilities that God has given you ought to be used in the best manner possible. And since you are to provide for the poor and those who are unable, those who've suffered tragedy, who now need your help and for giving an inheritance to your children, you had better find ways of making money, maximizing your abilities. And that means you do need to look at what does it pay for what I desire to do. And if something you may really enjoy, but it doesn't pay well, you should consider maybe not doing that. Let me throw a twist into this. And let's just say that you think you're gifted to be a teacher and you're really good at it. But you realize it only makes 40000 a year. And if you go into sales, you can double it and make eighty or more. Should you neglect your gift and what you enjoy so that you can double your money and have more resources to provide more for your family and for the church and for those in need? Well, it's an excellent question. I mean, the, the answer is making money and making more money is only one factor that you have to consider when you are thinking about what you will do as work for your life. I mean, there is the idea of what you are skilled at. There is the idea of the needs of the society around you. Uh, there is the idea of your own desires, what you can stand doing. I mean, there's some people who can make a lot of money doing something else, but they would drive themselves insane if they did, so okay. they don't do it. Well, what about this? Let's just say you do something that you consider kind of ridiculous, but there's an insane demand for it. Let's say you start your own pet rock business, and there's a potential to make a lot of money at it. Well, you think that the work has no inherent value to it, but there's a lot of people out there who want it. What do you do in a situation like that? Obviously, conscience is a big issue in these things. If you believe your actions are not right, if you believe that what you are doing is actually causing people to use their money poorly in buying your product, then you should not do it. But at the same time, you have to be careful and say, that is my conscience. If there's no clear prohibition in Scripture, you cannot now impose that on others. You still have your obligation which is the dominion mandate, which comes from Genesis uh, 1 and 2. You still have an obligation to serve others. So you need to find a way that you can do that. Well, we've been down this road before. Uh, and for instance, in the last century, it, when in the days of prohibition against alcohol and tobacco and all this stuff, it was not uncommon to find churches and whole denominations forbidding the members of their congregation from in any way engaging in the traffic or sale of alcohol, firearms, tobacco, you name it because they had deemed it to be something that was immoral, even though, according to the Word of God, it was adiaphora. They were making legitimate living, yet the church said, no, you, you, you can't do that. By adiaphora, you mean it's something indifferent, in other words, not right. directly commanded by God, and at which point we would say that, no, then a person should be free, according to his own conscience, according to the Word of God, to engage in these pursuits and to do that which provides for his family and f to give money to his church. When we come back after the break here tonight, we're going to deal with the issue. Now, what do we do with this money once we have it? Stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. 
There is no greater joy in the Christian's life than to worship God according to his word, and there is nowhere better in the San Gabriel Valley to do this than at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. So come join us this Sunday at 9 a.m. and at 6 p.m. at 226 West Colorado Boulevard in Arcadia. You can call us at 866-99-UNITED or look us up on the web at sinnersaint.org. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. and I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. All right, back here after the break on Sinners and Saints, dealing with the Eighth Commandment. Again, we want to just remind you that we would like your questions. Uh, as we wrap up this series on the Ten Commandments, we would like you to get in touch with us at centersaint.org. Uh, email us your questions. We'll air the best ones on air, and we'll try to tackle some of the uh, concerns that have been raised by this uh, series we've been uh, working on for the last several weeks. You can also call us toll-free, 866-99-UNITED, 866-99-UNITED. Leave that uh, question on one of the uh, voicemail boxes, and you may hear it on the air. Or you can just stop by and visit Reverend Colusian at 435. Make sure you cut that out. So getting back to this question of the Eighth Commandment, the positive application of it, the accumulation of wealth, let's just say hypothetically that uh, we've encouraged enough people uh, to go acquire their wealth, and now they have it. What should you do with it? This is a very important issue. It's not obviously just given for us to squander. How do we use wealth that God gives? Obviously, it has to be used in a manner that is God-glorifying because you are no longer your own but belong to Christ your Savior, and therefore all the things that you do should be in accordance with His, your Master's will. Obviously, one of the first things you need to do, in fact, the main thing that for which you're earning money, is to provide for your family. Provide for them. Make sure they have all their needs met. Make sure that they are fed. Make sure that they are housed and clothed, that their medical needs are taken care of. And then you have to start searching for ways of serving others with that money as well. How far do you take that? Um, very often when we think of family today, we've kind of shrunk it down to our our immediate family, say our siblings or more particularly probably our children. How broadly should we think of providing for your family once you have accumulated this wealth? We've talked about it earlier. You don't want to ever neglect your parents in their advanced age. You know, it comes full circle. They took care of you growing up, and now you've got to take care of them in their, you know, time of need. But if you're talking about providing for your family, that's the basic family unit. It's been like that for, you know, years and years. But it also extends further, too. It, it is your kinsmen as well, those who are of your blood. And so you shouldn't have your relatives dependent on others for charity. If they are in need, they don't have food it is your responsibility. You take care of them because that's part of the generous spirit that you have. Right. And again, you got to keep in mind, uh, we talk about the admonitions against laziness and the like. That all, of course, applies within the family unit, too. You don't want to support someone who's unwilling to work and who squanders just a you know, wealth just because yeah. they're in their, your family or what have you. Right. But, you know, within those bounds, yes, your extended family should be provided for. So it calls upon us, then, the Bible calls upon us to use our wealth to supply our family with its needs. Uh, the Confession directs us, the Westminster Confession, again, directs us uh, in another important way with the use of money. It calls upon us to make moderate use of worldly goods. How do we go about figuring this out? What is the moderate use 
of worldly goods, especially when we live in a first world country where looked at from third world standards, we just look like a bunch of rich slobs here. How do you figure out what's a moderate use and acquisition of worldly goods? Well, it's a tricky idea, but I can give you one principle that I think if a lot of Christians followed in this country would make a big difference, and that is simply to enjoy luxuries within your means. Uh, I don't believe that luxuries are evil. I believe God has blessed many people in this nation, many Christians in this nation, with the the means to enjoy luxuries. But what I mean by within the means is you have to have the money to pay for them. People mortgage their lives and their future and their children's future to the hilt through maxing out on multiple credit cards and carrying mortgages that they can't afford, carrying payments on a car that, uh, you know, all of these expenses, luxury, you know, cable television, 18 magazine subscriptions, all of these things, which there's nothing wrong with them inherently if you have the means to support them. But a lot of people don't. And so clearly that's an immoderate use of our money. And also, it's not simply what you can afford, but also what you are able to afford after you have been generous in the service of others and of the church, too. So giving to the church is a very important thing to do because you are demonstrating that you believe you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this is the means of the kingdom doing its work, training up future ministers, providing places of worship, helping the poor. All these things have to be done, and that must be part of your budget. You bring up process. a good Those point. are the priorities is the yeah. point, right, Moses? Well, I mean, it's not just that we, we do all of these things, but it's that we provide for our family first, we provide for the church and for the poor, and then if we have money left over within the means, not on credit or loans or whatever, then you may begin to enjoy some luxuries. But how do, see, we how always do we, put it backwards. Okay, how do we prioritize this, though? Uh, even with the church, with our giving to the church, what kinds of things should we demand or inst- Hopefully, not have to demand, but say, I want my money to go to this when I give to the church. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I think of is the churches have to be responsible in spending the money on the things of the kingdom of God. So what does As that mean? As opposed to, that what is means... That? Everything's the kingdom now. What does that mean? Well, yeah, the kingdom isn't everything, although some people speak that way. The kingdom specifically, the kingdom of Christ is advanced through the support of the preaching of the gospel and through the uh, liberal help to those who are in diaconal need. Those are the primary things that the money should be spent on. Do you, when you mean give to the by church. that members of the congregation or just people who come with a handout it's, to the church? It's primarily members of the congregation. You may extend beyond that when there is uh, interest in the gospel message that you are preaching, but the church's money should go to be the support of the preaching of the ministry of the word. And by the way, I'm not making this up. You find this, Paul talks a lot about this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the examples how the church in Corinth was. Um, getting money and giving money for the support of the saints in Jerusalem, supporting the preachers and supporting the church planting efforts and supporting the diaconal needs of those who are coming to faith. That's where the churches should be spending money. And so when they do that, then the people should rise to support those projects. You know, a lot of times churches just waste their money on all kinds of stupid programs and social things and whatever, which is not their calling. And so they waste God's people's money. Well, we're not into doing that. We don't want to waste any of the precious resources that God bestows upon his uh, saints through his gracious providential giving unto us. What we want to do is be good stewards of all that God has given and to work diligently so that we not only glorify him through the labor that we perform, but also that we are uh, blessed through that to have the, the means necessary to sustain life and to care for our loved ones and promote his church. That's what the Eighth Commandment uh, boils down to in positive application. 
we want to remind you, get a hold of us at centersaint.org, centersaint.org, or 866-99-UNITED. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to tonight on Centers and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED.